Okay, so recap from last week. What was the t branch of theology that this class is going to cover? Anybody remember what it was called? Eschatology. Eschatology. Great word. Great word. What does... There you go. You're busting that one out at parties. What does eschatology mean? Study of the end. Study of things related to the end. Eschatology. Remember two types of eschatology that we're going to talk about? Corporate and individual. What's corporate eschatology discuss and, and, and what's that all about? Yeah, what's going to happen big time, like, like with nations and, and heaven and all that kind of stuff when God's reign comes on earth and antichrists and beasts and 666s and all of the things. That's usually the default uh, definition that most people have of eschatology. What is personal eschatology concerned with? Oh, that to you. Yeah, individual. What happens to me at the end of my life, at my end, what happens? And that has to do with questions of, of dying and heaven and hell and the intermediate state and, and if you're Catholic, purgatory and all of those questions that we're going to look at. So the two types of eschatology that we covered in this class, corporate and individual. Last week, we looked at, in talking about eschatological views. That's the way you say that, by the way, eschatological. We looked at the three main ways that Christians throughout history have looked at corporate eschatology, end times, what's going to happen. There, there were three overall views that most, almost every Christian view of the end time falls into. And there are only three. And what are those three views all centered around? What do they all, what, what do they relate to? The millennium. Yeah, we talked about the millennium and how all of the major end times views basically put an event in relationship to this event in the Bible called the millennium. What's that event that they put in relationship to it? Yeah, the return of Jesus. So basically all of the major views about end times have to do with Jesus' return And how that relates to the millennium or the thousand years. They all hinge on that question. And so we looked at the three main views that asked this question. The first view, does anybody remember what it was called? Pre-millennial. Pre Microsoft Word will never recognize this. And you'll always put a red underline under it. So if you're ever typing it, you didn't misspell it. That's how you spell it. Premillennialism. And it sounds, you know, automatically it sounds intimidating and it sounds hard to understand. But what does premillennialism basically say? Jesus will return before the millennium. Jesus returns and then he ushers in this period of a thousand years where he reigns on the earth, and everything's, you know, there's different depictions of it. Does anybody remember, by the way, where this description of the millennium came from in the Bible? There's only one actual mention of the millennium in the Bible by name. Anybody remember where that was? Yeah, in the book of Revelation 20. That's it. There's no other place in the Bible that talks about a millennium in, in the sense of a future time when Jesus or, or when Christ will reign. All right? So... Just that's something that's really good to know. 
any other reading, when, when people say, and this passage talks about the millennium, and this passage talks about the millennium, and this passage talks about the millennium, they're reading it into the passage. And, and whether they're right or wrong, whether those passages do in fact refer to this period is a whole other question. But it's important to know that by name, this event is only described in Revelation 20. So premillennialism is the belief that Jesus will come back and set up a millennial kingdom. And does anybody know how old or how far back this belief goes? From the from, from, no, premillennialism in its overall form goes all the way back to the beginning of, of the church. Um, sometimes this is called historic, historic premillennialism. Because from the earliest church fathers, you can find the idea, and even in pre-Christian Jewish tradition, you find the idea that when the Messiah comes, one of the things that he will do is set up this worldwide reign where he rules the earth. So historic premillennialism is, is as old as, as the church. But this has not been the only view that Christians have had in the history of the church, that when Jesus returns, he'll set up a millennial kingdom. Another view that Christians have had was called post-millennialism. And this arose later in church history and flourished mainly in the time of the Enlightenment and the Great Awakenings in America and the Wesleyan revivals in England. Postmillennial interpreters agree with premillennialism that the millennium of Revelation 20, this golden era, this age of universal reign of Jesus on earth, is an event yet to come. And all the events of Revelation 20 haven't happened yet. And we're looking forward to that. But where they differ is premillennialism says Jesus is the one who's going to return and make that happen. Postmillennials say, no, 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 no. Jesus is going to make that happen, but he's going to do it through his earthly church. In other words, postmillennialism, the church wins. The church carries out the Great Commission. It evangelizes the whole world, and the world overall is brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ through his church, through the gospel spreading and lives being transformed. And Jesus bodily returns after the millennium, thus the post. So they both agree Jesus is coming back. And they both agree that he's going to rule during the millennium. Premillennials say he's going to come back and set it up. Dispensational premillennials say he's going to come back and set it up after he snatches the church away. Postmillennials say, no, it's going to happen through his church. The last view that we looked at is the view of amillennialism. Any English grammarians want to tell me what the a prefix means? What, well, what does the a prefix mean? Without. Without, or there is not, or no. Amillennialism has been thought of as saying this millennium of Revelation 20 isn't a literal thousand year period in the future. It's not something that we're to look forward to. Rather, amillennialism says, hey, this thousand-year period that Revelation 20 describes is Revelation's way of describing the reign of Christ through his suffering martyred church. And it's, it's a paradoxical way of describing it, reigning through suffering, coming to life through dying. But amillennials say that's how Revelation works. It presents Jesus, the Lion of Judah, as a slaughtered lamb. It presents victory coming through suffering. It presents conquering through giving your life in defeat. So amillennials say, Revelation 20 is not describing a future literal thousand years. It's not describing an earthly reign of Jesus. when he re It's describing the church. 
the age. It's describing everything that it began, the thousand-year period began when he ascended, which is why there's only two dashes on the bottom of your chart. It began when he ascended, and it will end when he returns. So it'll just be Jesus returns, final judgment, that's it. No thousand-year gap period, no you know, rapture and, and Israel and tribulation, all that stuff. It's all Revelation's way of describing the period that we are in as a church. There was one last view that wasn't on this chart because it doesn't have any charting or anything like that. And that was more of a, it, it, it's more of not an end times view, but a way of approaching scripture. And that was called preterism. Preterists say, look, all these passages in the Bible about the future, about the end of the world, those were all biblical either metaphorical, allegorical, or symbolic ways of describing the events that would happen in the early church or shortly after. So all of the description of stars falling from the sky and the earth turning to uh, the sun turning to darkness and the moon turning to blood, etc., etc., that is all biblical prophetic ways to describe the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD or the fall of Rome in a couple hundred years later. And it's all happened so as Christians, we don't have anything in Scripture written about what we would see as the end. We just know Jesus is going to come back, and we just leave it at that. So preterist is a way of approaching the Bible that says, and, and this idea, if you ever took any kind of foreign language, especially Greek or, or Latin or whatever, the preterist, the, is, it means completed or, or in the past or finished. Preterists say the Bible doesn't tell us about the future other than, yeah, Jesus is going to return. But all the passages about the future that we read have to do with the future from the early church's perspective. And this, this, is, a, this is a semi-influential view among some scholars, especially among uh, if, you, if, if scholars or, or interpreters from, a, from the reform perspective. They tend to give this a little more credence than from, say, a Baptist perspective. Uh, and none of those are, are hard and fast rules, but just in general. The opposite way of reading the Bible from preterism that plays into some of these worldviews, if not all of them. The opposite way of reading the Bible from preterism is creatively named futurism. Futurists read the Bible and they say, hey, when the Bible's talking about the end, it's talking about the end end with a capital E. So everything Jesus says, let's say in Matthew 24, in, in what's called the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is describing the end of the age, Preterists say he was describing the end of the Jewish age and the beginning of the Messianic age that he would inaugurate. He was describing 70 AD, what would happen when Jerusalem fell. Futurists say, no, he was describing the end end, the end of the world, and it hasn't happened yet. Preterists would read Revelation and say, Revelation is all about what was going on in the events leading up to 70 AD. It was written in the late 60s, and it was under the persecution of Nero, and it was describing for Christians what they were going through and what would happen to Rome, a.k.a. Babylon, and how they would deal with it. And it used cosmic and, and end times language to describe events that they were going through. Futurists would say, no, 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 Revelation, everything in Revelation, especially everything after chapter 4, is describing stuff that hasn't happened yet. Futurists read Revelation as the newspaper written in advance, as I think Hal Lindsey put it. Um, futurists read Revelation as what's going on now in the world and, and what's going to happen in the future. Preterists say it already happened. All the other positions are somewhere in between, all the other ways of reading scripture are somewhere in between. 
These are questions of what scholars call hermeneutics. How do I study the Bible? How do I interpret the Bible? That's what these ask. These are conclusions that people draw based on how they read the Bible. Is everybody with on that? Is that point clear and basic? Okay. Well, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about specifically the dispensational premillennial approach because by far in North America, among evangelical Christians, it's the dominant view. Premillennial dispensationalism is the view that you're going to see nine times out of ten if you turn on the TV. Nine times out of ten, if you see something about end times on TV, it will be premillennial dispensational. It'll be very rare to see something that doesn't present it that way. All right, that was the view. Like we said, there were basically, basically two views throughout the history of most of the church. Amillennialism, premillennialism. That's pretty much all there was. Postmillennial came along, and, and like I said, postmillennialism, you can track its, its rise and fall by how good things were in the world at the time. In other words, after World War I, people started to not believe in postmillennialism. After World War II, almost no one believed in postmillennialism. In other words, it didn't look like that. When it looks like the church is winning, people tend to adopt a postmillennial approach. And when things like the Holocaust and all of the disasters of the 20th century happened, very few people now are postmillennials, although there are a few. Well, premillennialism, those were the two views. Some, some Christians said there's going to be a future glory days when Jesus returns and sets up a worldly kingdom. And other Christians said, no, all that is language that describes the church. That was pretty much it. Early 1800s come around. There are various attempts to track how dispensationalism arose. And if you do a website search, you're going to hear back and forth. And, and so what I've tried to do is sort of weed out and give you the main players and what's involved. But... In 1830, a young Scottish-Irish girl, Margaret MacDonald, had a vision. And, and what you have on this sheet is the, the, her account of what happened. And this vision that she had, she shared with her church, with her congregations. Well, one of the people who historians of dispensationalism say was, we'll say, intrigued by this and spent time with her and her family and discussed this more and, and sort of used this to form his view of things, along with pulling from a couple of other individuals, was John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby. He is a very influential figure. And John Nelson Darby was part of the Brethren movement. You may have heard of the Brethren, the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, George Mueller was another one of them, and it was a group in the mid-1800s and a Protestant group. Well, John Nelson Darby, through his discussions with the McDonald's and through his discussions with other people in his area, uh, Edward Irving was one of his people that influenced him as well. He introduced the concept that when Jesus, is, when Jesus returns what we call the second coming, that there's going to be two stages. Okay? This is going to happen in two stages. Up until that time, everybody pretty much agreed when Jesus comes, he's just coming back once, and he's either going to set up a millennium or do the final judgment thing. It was pretty much the two views. 
Darby, through reading and talking with, and, and here's uh, Margaret McDonald's, her account, if you read it, and we, we won't read it out loud, but I've underlined some of the pretty, much, pretty important parts in it. Her vision, one, you get a sense, is very mystical. It's very mystical, very, um, you know, the spiritual experience she had. And it was also very pessimistic of the state of the church. And that's one thing that John, Mar John Nelson Darby also held to, is that the church, and especially the visible church, the institutional church, the church that the world sees, the church was failing and was going into apostasy. You might know what apostasy is? Apostasy is turning away from Jesus, turning away from God. In other words, the church was not fulfilling its mission. It was, it was, it's a, it was a sinking ship. But God always preserves a remnant. And God always knows His sheep hear His voice. He knows the weeds from the wheat. He knows who are His. And so what Darby said was, Jesus' return is going to happen in two stages. The first stage is not actually a full return to earth. The first thing he's going to do is he is going to come back and remove the real church. He is going to remove true believers in order to spare them judgment. That was one of the things that he, and you can see this in Margaret McDonald's account where one of the things she talks about at the bottom of the page, the first page where the second paragraph from the bottom, it says the underlined part, we may discern that which cometh not with observation of the net to the natural eye. Only those who have the light of God within them will see the sign of his appearance. Uh, for his day shall be as lightning to those in whom the living Christ is. In other words, what Margaret MacDonald had a vision of was Jesus' return for his church will only be able to be seen and perceived by those in whom he's truly dwelling. Which is interesting because in the Gospels and when Jesus refers in that passage that she's alluding to, the return of the Son of Man, he says, as lightning is visible from the east and the west, so it's going to be. Every eye will see. Every, you know, so, so that's one thing that McDonald's vision introduced was that, no, it's not going to really be seen by everybody. There's going to be a special class of believers. Uh, she goes on then, though, in her vision to talk about how, and, and this is where the paragraph at the top of that, of the sheet from Dave McPherson talks about that pre-trib, Dorian Darby and others pulled from her. They didn't take her thing wholly. She said... McDonald said that there would be basically a partial rapture. In other words, Jesus would, would come and collect his own, but some of the church would kind of stick around and, and continue to exist and continue to be tempted by Satan and go through judgment and tribulation and what she called a refining process. And then eventually when he returned, returned, then he would also collect those believers as well. So there was what was called a partial rapture. And, and Darby didn't pick up on that. And premillennial dispensationalism doesn't for the most part, hold to that. So that was something that was unique to her. Well, the note on the last page of the McDonald thing, by the way, is interesting. There's an, a, an amended that she added after she published this account. And I've given you the, the source for this and the publication. You can go if you really want to look it up. But afterwards, she actually said, oh, one thing that I forgot is uh, 
one individual, this is third line down in that note section, one individual was expressly mentioned by name as the future desolator of this land, who at the time, nine years ago, was not all preeminent as the leader of infidelity, but who has so notoriously and awfully become so, Mr. Owen. And then it gives you a note. She's talking about Robert Owen, who was a communist, British, influential politician, et cetera, et cetera. So even back in the 1830s, they were naming antichrist candidates and saying this, this person. And she even says, the Holy Spirit of the Lord revealed this to me. So hmm, there you go. But Jay and Darby. He took from that idea. This is the first account that we really have of, of, an, of a notion of Jesus coming and collecting his own out of the earth before his final return. Okay, and that's the key to remember that Margaret MacDonald and Robert Irving and others, or Edward Irving and others added was this idea that Jesus' return would be in two stages. All right, so that, that belief, this, this idea, and this became known as the rapture, well, what you had to do was, okay, if this is true, then where does it say it in the Bible? And so proponents of this and Darby and others went to passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, which talks about being caught up in the air. And that verb caught up in Latin, rapturo, is where the name rapture comes from. And we'll look at that a little bit more. But uh, there, uh, yes, Christine. Well, it's not like she said this and everybody believed it, but she influenced John Darby and spending time with her and talking. And, and, and people have always uh, been drawn to people who have ecstatic visions or who have prophetic words. So we see this today, you know, how many prophets are there throughout churches today that will give utterances or have TV shows or things like that. I mean, people listen to things that are interesting, exciting, and new. And the idea of Jesus coming back in two stages was very interesting, very exciting, and very new. And that's something to keep in mind. Another thing that John Nelson Darby and his peop- those that came after him believed, a key tenet, and we're going to look at it, was there were Israel and separate from Israel. was the church. And not just separate in the sense that you had people ethnically Israelite and then you had the church, because everybody believed that. I mean, there were ethnic Jews throughout the world. This is before the nation of Israel was refounded, so there were Jewish communities everywhere. Everybody believed that. What Jay and Darby brought forth was the idea that Israel apart from Jesus, in other words, non-believing Jews, as opposed to Jews who do believe, people like Paul and others, was still in covenant and still God's people. And he had a dealing with them on one side. And the church was a whole other thing, something new. And the Old Testament never prophesied or talked about the church. In other words, the church was this thing. The church was, I don't want to caricature, but the church was plan B. The real plan was Jesus would come, the Jews would accept him, Israel would be the light of the world, and the, the people of God, the covenants, all that would be fulfilled through Israel then taking the knowledge of Christ and the gospel to the world. Well, when the majority of Jews rejected Jesus in his earthly ministry, Darby and others said, God 
put his dealings, his covenants, all the stuff he promised in the Old Testament to Israel, he put all of that on hold and just said, all right, I'm going to stop here. He created the church, this largely Gentile spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. Israel was an earthly kingdom. Israel always is an earthly kingdom, always will be an earthly kingdom according to this thinking. He created a spiritual kingdom. That spiritual kingdom was the church. And the church is a, and this is quoting John Nelson Darby, divine parentheses in God's plan. In other words, the church is God's, okay, I'm putting stuff with Israel on hold. I'm going to do stuff with this new group called the church. And when I come back or when I get back to keeping all the promises that I made to Israel, I can't do that while the church is around because Israel is my earthly people. So I'm going to take the church to their heavenly spiritual dwelling with me and Israel will have all of the earthly reign and rule and authority and prosperity that I promised them in the Old Testament. And so that was the system. The second thing that was introduced by and popularized by John Nelson Darby was this two-track uh, method of, of the people of God. Uh, the handout that I gave you, the larger handout, this is an excerpt from a, a series of talks given by Reverend Stephen Sizer. He's an Episcopal priest, and he is a, a historian of dispensationalism. And he is also a critic of dispensationalism. So this is not an inside account. This is, this is a, here's what it is, and, and then he critiques it at the end. And we'll talk about some of his critiques and others next week. But his account of how it arose is, it agrees with the most accurate and, and the most well-researched accounts of dispensationalism. So it, it's not a very skewed, at least as far as I can tell. He gives, he, he talks about this, and this is one we won't cover again, but you'll need to read through this week to get a handle on, or it doesn't have to be this week, but if you're unfamiliar with some of these terms, he talks about uh, what we call fundamentalism, and then he goes on to describe the dominant view within fundamentalism is this premillennial dispensationalism, and then the bottom of that first page, he gives the origins of dispensationalism, starting there. I wanted to read a couple of the, the quotes from John Nelson Darby that Sizer picks up on. This is on the second page. It's the indented paragraph that starts with what we're about to consider. This is uh, from some of John Nelson Darby's writings. This is a lecture in 1840 that he gave. He says, what we're about to consider will tend to show that instead of permitting ourselves to hope for a continued progress of good, in other words, hope that things get better and the church influences the world, we must expect a, prog a progress of evil and that the hope of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord before the exercise of his judgment and the consummation of this judgment on earth is delusive. In other words, that ain't happening. We're to expect evil until it becomes so flagrant that it will be necessary for the Lord to judge it. I'm afraid that many a cherished feeling dear to the children of God has been shocked this evening. I mean, their hope that the gospel will spread by itself over the whole earth during the, this actual dispensation. In other words, what he's saying is you think the church is going to expand and the gospel is going to spread, but in reality, things are going to get worse and worse and worse until God has no choice but to purge and destroy. And hope, the hope that he has and that he introduced and others was before he does that, though, the good news, he's going to take you out of here. So you'll be spared that. Another key of, of Darby's dispensationalism was that the church is not an earthly entity. The church is a spiritual reality. All of the promises in the Old Testament that were given that were earthly in nature, in other words, being a kingdom and having peace and prosperity and milk and honey and all that stuff, 
all of those are given to earthly Israel and they will happen during the earthly millennium when earthly Israel is reigning under Jesus from earthly Jerusalem. And all of those promises are not to be ascribed to the church. The church is, is, is a temporary resident and is going to be taken out so that all those things can happen to ethnic Israel. Uh, the second indented paragraph at the top, he says, the church has sought to settle itself here, but it has no place on earth. Though making a most constructive parenthesis, meaning the church is, is this parenthesis, it forms no part of the regular order of God's earthly plans, but is merely an interruption of them to give a fuller character and meaning to them who are the Jews. In other words, the church is, is, is not part of God's original plan, not part of the seed of Abraham. Not, the church is not that. The church is an interruption of that because God's people as a whole rejected their Messiah. And so God said, I'm going to show my glory through the Gentiles. I'm going to spread my knowledge through them. I'm going to save a remnant, you know, take them out of the world and then get back to doing business with Israel. So these are some of the contributions that before Darby, we don't find any record of, of people teaching this, especially in a systematic way. There might be hints or, or echoes or, or people thinking somewhat along these lines, but as far as putting it all together, we don't see that. One of the things that Darby spoke about and, and taught is this conviction that the church is properly heavenly in its calling and relationship with Christ forming no part of the course of events of the earth, which makes the rapture so simple and clear. And on the other hand, it shows how the denial of the church's rapture brings down the church to an earthly position and destroys its whole spiritual character and position. In other words, the church is not made to be a part of God's redemptive plan that he set out in the Old Testament. It's an exception to that, and we're in that parenthesis period where God's going to do what he does with us, but it's a new thing. The New Testament introduced a new thing, not a continuation of the old covenant promises. There, there are some, some things that help understand where Darby and others are coming from and, and why they arrive at the conclusions they do. Through Margaret MacDonald, and Edward Irving and their influence on John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby made about, I want to say a half dozen or so trips in the mid-1800s to North America and back, teaching and preaching and, and, and promulgating this gospel. Well, he influenced a couple of people. And by influence, I mean he, he was moved in circles with them and they talked and, and there was a lot of theological exchange. Two of those people were C.I. Schofield and D.L. Moody. C.I. Schofield and D.L. Moody. C.I. Schofield, we mentioned last week, he gave the world basically the first study Bible, the Schofield Reference Bible. This is a, a personal sized copy, but it's a replica of the original one. It's been updated twice, uh, maybe more since then, but this is the old Schofield, published by Oxford Press. And what Schofield's Bible did was put the system of theology of dispensationalism, which we'll look at in just a second, into study note formats and on the pages of Scripture where the reader could be guided through, 
Scripture according to this dispensational way of reading the Bible. And, and that's not a mischaracterization. If you read the introduction to the Schofield Reference Bible, he talks about, this is how I've set this out to give, and uh, he says a, I have to find it, but he says a very uh, scientific approach. And, and I guess what he meant by that was, was um, systematic. Uh, to write, yeah, an order which rightly understood is absolutely scientific. In other words, C.I. Schofield was a lawyer and a preacher, and he used his legal and theological skills, some would put a question mark behind that, but he used that to give a systematic, very rational and, 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 and organized way of reading the Bible, and put it in the study notes, and put those right there on the text, and what's more important than the study notes, which were at the bottom of the page, were paragraph headings that were inserted into the text so to tell you where you are in the chapter. So in other words, in a passage in Isaiah, that in the Hebrew Bible is just, it's just boom, here's the prophecy. In the Schofield Bible, there will be references like the promised king, the king's rule, the king's rejection. The king. In other words, he gave what, what he called reader aids. And they, a lot of people found them extremely helpful. He also introduced some of the famous things that, that Christians believed in the 1900s and still today. Uh, he introduced the gap theory as some people have called in, in Genesis, where you have Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and in Genesis 2, it should read, and instead of reading, and now the earth was formless and empty, what gap theorists, and, and Schofield put this in the study notes, was that should read, the earth became formless and empty, so that all of the creation accounts don't describe the initial creation of the universe, that happened billions of years ago, they describe a six-day recreation of the universe, which happened about six to 10,000 years ago. In other words, a way of harmonizing Genesis with science called the gap theory. And a lot of people that have heard of that growing up or have studied that they don't realize Schofield was the one who popularized that in his study Bible. The other thing he introduced were, were dates on every page of when the events happened. So you turn to Genesis 1-1 in the Schofield Bible, right there at the top of the page, 4004 BC. In other words, he used Bishop James Usher's dating of, the, you know, and so that's where, if you look at it, most fundamentalists during the 1900s, this was the age of, the, of Darwinism coming on the rise, churches sort of reacting against that, a group of Baptists and then later other evangelicals joined with them and introduced or wrote down what were called the fundamentals, which were a way of saying, this is what we believe. And this separates us from liberal Christians or apostate Christians or, or non-biblical Christians. These are the fundamentals of the faith. That's where fundamentalism came from, and, and it grew throughout the 1900s. Well, their Bible of choice was the Schofield Reference Bible. So fundamentalism and dispensationalism were, were somewhat wed from the beginning. There wasn't a total overlap. Not all fundamentalists were dispensational. Not all dispensationalists were fundamentalists. But there was a large overlap between the two. This belief arose. D.L. Moody was an evangelist, and he was a very good evangelist, and God used him to introduce a number of people to the gospel. Well, D.L. Moody was very much taken with this way of interpreting the end times and, and believed it was right on, and, and so he was excited about it. And he used that approach in some of his sermons, uh, the idea of, of preaching, you know, you don't want to be left behind. You don't want to miss the rapture. The Lord could come back at any day. This became a motivation for spreading the gospel, which is why so many evangelical and fundamental Christians 
come from this background because they were brought to faith by people from this background, good, good Christian brothers and sisters. So this spread the teaching of dispensationalism, all of this in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and eventually two schools of thought or, or, or centers of dispensational teaching arose. Uh, Scho uh, Schofield's church eventually became or gave rise to Dallas Theological Seminary, which is still operating today and has produced some really good scholars. And Dallas is a very, I mean, Dallas isn't some little rinky-dinky Bible school. I mean, they, they're sharp. I have friends that graduated from DTS. And, and the Dallas Theological Seminary, though, became a, a, a hub for dispensationalism. The other one was, of course, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. What Schofield had done and what Moody uh, popularized and spread was this uh, Bible correspondence course where you could receive Bible teachings and, and, and get a, it wasn't a professional degree, but it was a, a, a certificate in, in Bible study. And this gave rise to, a lot of these gave rise to Bible colleges and schools of the Bible and things like that as a way to offer an alternative to secular universities and liberal traditional seminaries. So this sprang up in America, and, and the, the people today who are, are proponents of dispensationalism can trace their spiritual lineage, at least when it comes to end times views, through this route. One thing to keep in mind, too, was what was going on in world history. This is the time of the Civil War. This is the time of the rise of industrialism. This is the time of all of these things that are happening that are, are very earth-shattering and, and turning points in history. So it was, it was a combination of all of that, the, the demise of the state-run church. Remember, Darby's British, so he's seeing the Church of England and all of its you know, downfall and the, and the Catholic Church and all of its institutional, what he called institutional evil and all this stuff. So it was, it was a, a, a theology that, that he sort of, um, he, he was definitely the person who popularized it if not invented it. The foundations of it, and here at the bottom of, of, of summary of traditional dispensational doctrine, one of the keys, and this is something that, that Darby and Schofield sort of, Schofield popularized it, Darby is, as far as we know invented it, or at least is the first voice we have in history of it. The, the dispensationalism gets its name from dividing up history in the Bible into seven dispensations. And they're given to you right there on the top of the page. Seven, what a dispensation is, and Schofield talks about it in his, right at the beginning of his reference Bible. He basically says dispensations are periods of time where God judges the world, tests humanity in different ways, and humanity fails the test, and God institutes a new dispensation. All right? So the dispensations, the first one that, that uh, Darby and Schofield found are, is what they call the dispensation of innocence, and that's beginning in Genesis 1.28. After that passed, and, and Adam and Eve in the fall, came the dispensation of conscience, or, or what's called moral responsibility. And that was the age where people were judged by following their conscience, which was their knowledge of God. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and on. Then in chapter 8.15, God institutes the dispensation of human government. 
And that's with the Noah flood and, and in the middle of that. Then in Genesis 12, which is when Abram comes on the scene, God institutes the dispensation of promise. And so everyone from Abram until Exodus 19 is under the dispensation of promise. They believe in God's promise. They're saved through their faith. In Exodus 19, boom, Mount Sinai. Now is the dispensation of law. People under this dispensation are judged by God based on their fulfillment of the law rather than on going by conscience. That goes until Acts chapter 2. In other words, the dispensation of the law covers the whole Old Testament and the Gospels. Acts 2 a new thing, uh, Schofield actually, let me so I quote his words right, Schofield says about the New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles record the descent of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of a new thing in human history, the church. The division of the race, human race, now becomes threefold, the Jew, the Gentile, and the church of God. So Acts 2 is the beginning of the dispensation called the church, made up of mostly non-Jewish believers in Jesus. That's going to go until Jesus ushers in the final dispensation, which is in Revelation 20, the kingdom, and what we would call heaven or the new heavens. So this was a key way, and this came for Darby and Schofield through the verse that says that the man of God is equipped and, and able to rightly divide the word of truth in the King James Bible. So according to that, you take it literally. You rightly divide the word. So the Bible was divided into ferreting out and finding these ages that God operates is how you determine what God's doing. And so Schofield did that. Darby did that. Dispensationalism does that. That's one of the key foundations to how you approach the Bible. Uh, I think uh, it, was, it was Darby or one, might have been Moody. One of them says, determine the ages and... Scripture harmonizes itself. Within dispensational, there's, a, there's been a movement that's come, that's come up in the last probably 20 or so years called progressive dispensationalism. And that's scholars, most of whom are at DTS and other, are trying to say, hey, let's get, let's, let's, they're trying to distance themselves from dispensationalism, but still stay under the umbrella and, and in good okay. fellowship. So that's something to, to talk about later. But the other key to dispensationalism and reading the Bible this way is the distinction, again, between Israel and the church. The paragraph right underneath that that's indented from uh, Darby, the dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages God is pursuing two distinct purposes, one related to the earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism, while the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity. Okay, so this distinction, Israel and the church and never the two shall meet. Um, there's another quote right under there, probably the most basic theological test of whether or not a person is a dispensationalist, and it's undoubtedly the most practical and conclusive. The one who fails to distinguish Israel and the church will consistently, consistently will inevitably not hold to dispensational, dispensational distinctions, and one who does will. So that's a key part of being dispensationalist is God's got an earthly people that he's pursuing a plan with, and that's Israel and Judaism. And he's got a heavenly people that he's going to eventually take up to heaven off the earth, and that's the church. All right? Then the last point, and this one's probably the most in order of importance. I would put this one at the top because this is where all the others derive from, is what's called a literalist hermeneutic. What that means is wherever you can read the Bible literally, you do. 
and you don't spiritualize or allegorize or read metaphor where you don't have to. Okay? In other words, uh, and here's a, again a quote from Darby, not one instance exists of a, quote, spiritual or figurative fulfillment of prophecy. Jerusalem is always Jerusalem, Israel is always Israel, Zion is always Zion. Prophecies may never be spiritualized, but are always literal. So if you're a dispensationalist, this, this is how you read Scripture. Therefore, passages in the Old Testament that talk about Israel as a nation being lifted up and the Gentiles coming to Israel and all these passages, those have to happen literally to literal Israel as a literal nation. They can't be spiritualized away. And that's the, the biggest critique that dispensationalists level against non-dispensationalists is, oh, you just spiritualize things away and you don't take the Word of God literally, therefore you don't take it seriously. All right? Um, yeah, the, the paragraph on the next page, this is by Charles Ryrie, who from the Ryrie Study Bible, he's a famous dispensationalist today says, to be sure, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation is not the sole possession or practice of dispensationalists. In other words, we're not the only ones who do it. But the consistent use of it in all areas of biblical interpretation is. In other words, we're the only ones who do it consistently. That's what marks dispensationalism. And so on the rest of that page, there's a, a summary of it. Now, I want to not, I want to make sure that we're not speaking or characterizing dispensationalism. So, I want to pass around two sheets. From these, these groupings, you've gotten people who've been very influential. And dispensationalists, right or wrong, whatever you think about, dispensationalism have been very, very influential in the evangelical church in America. Very influential, to the point that some people just assume if you're evangelical, you're dispensational. It's just, there's, and most people that grow up in dispensational environments literally have never heard any other way of approaching end times views or Israel or things like that. Well, some of the people who came along, besides Schofield and Moody, you had Lewis, Barry Schaefer, you had Charles Ryrie, had John Wolverd, Oops, v -O. and and these are if you look at textbook you had uh, Dwight Pentecost, awesome last name, who I think still teaches at Dallas. These are the for for dispensationalists the scholars. These are the theology textbooks that dispensationalism uses, circulates, reads. These are the people. These are the people who people like Beth Moore or Charles Stanley. Chuck Swindoll. John Chuck Carson. Swindoll. John Hagee. Yeah. John Hagee. Jack Van Impey. Jerry Falwell. Pat Robertson. These are the people who they have gotten their teaching through. Billy, not so much. No. He, he's, he's more historical. He's, he, I think he flirted with dispensationalism in the 60s and 70s, um, but has, has shied away from that. Most 
people from dispensationalism are associated with, with Southern Baptists or various Baptists, independent fundamentalist branches, and charismatic churches, Assemblies of God and things like that, uh, just where they tend to come from. Whereas most Presbyterians or Episcopalians, Lutherans, Methodists are not dispensationalists. Not, not, that doesn't mean there aren't any. There's a lot of you know, intermingling, intermixing. But just in general, it helps to know. Now, what I've given you are, put the one that's a chart. Just put that aside for right now. I've given you from Tim LaHaye's book. I mentioned it last week, Charting the End Times. Yeah. Tim LaHaye and Tom Ice. Uh, I've, I've gone through the book, and, and I made notes and, and highlights and things that, that were distinctly dispensational about this book. And sort of put them just in, not in the order of, of I just put them in the order that they're given in the book with page numbers and stuff. The key, look at the top, page 13. This is, this is from Tim LaHaye, who is one of the, oh, I, I need to mention the two most famous. To get this into a popular mindset, we looked at last week how Lindsay, he wrote the uber best-selling late great planet Earth in the 60s. And this thing flew off the shelves, and it had all his predictions about World War III and the rise of Russia and the beast and the Antichrist and everything. The key event that energized dispensationalism, that gave it new life, that really got people who had never been dispensationalists before to start listening. Anybody guess what it is? Israel. Israel, 1948. Because dispensationalism had said Israel will literally be back in the land. And non-dispensationalists had said, Israel's scattered all over the world. There's no way that God's going to restore Israel. Well, boom, 1948 happens. It was just bananas among dispensationalists. When 1948 happened, dispensationalists everywhere said, Ha! We told you so. Now God's going to begin to do all of those things that he's promised. In fact, Israel was, was, called, uh, was when God's Armageddon clock began ticking again to use dispensational language. 1948, it started again. God is regathering Israel. The Antichrist and the end times are right around the corner. The tribulation is about to begin. The third temple is going to be rebuilt. All of these things, 1948. And in Jesus' discussion that we'll look at in a few weeks in Matthew 24 and this parallels where he's talking about all of the, the, the end times things that are going to happen. He's telling his disciples, nation will rise against nation. There will be famines and earthquake, this and that. Jesus caps that, he ends his discourse by saying, or, or in the, I guess in the middle of it, he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. Dispensationalists always interpreted that verse to mean this generation being the generation that will experience those things. And that had been on hold for 2,000 years or so. And when God started to do it, there would be one generation that would take place. And in the Bible, and, and in Late Great Planet Earth, how Lindsay makes a big deal and says, hey, the generation in the Bible, 40 years. This is written in the 60s. There's 40 years as a biblical generation. If Israel was reconstituted in 1948, Jesus is coming back when? 1988. And that's where you get the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 88, and all of the hysteria that came along with that. Because if Israel's founding was that was the beginning of it, then the most 
time that could go was 40 years. So you saw in the 60s and especially in the 70s and in the early 80s this dispensational fervor and people think rapture right around the corner. It's going to happen. It has to happen. 88 came, 88 went, nothing happened. Revised edition of Late Great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey says the biblical generation is 100 years. <laughs> so you push the time back a little bit. So their interpretation is those who are alive at the time won't be dead. Exactly. Yes, that's the generation. Those who are alive to see it will see it. Jesus makes that very clear. Non-dispensationalists never read it that way. Uh, there were a couple of other interpretations. But regardless, Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth. That was a big deal. Guy who came along and popularized it is who we're looking at right now. Tim LaHaye took what Hal Lindsey and others basically had been teaching, put it in novel format, called it Left Behind, the rest is history. Growing up dispensational, a very influential resource for us and our family was uh, Walbert's Bible Knowledge Commentary. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, yeah, by John Walbert. That's still very influential among among Southern Baptists in general. Um, yeah, this, this is, this, these are names to know for all of the things that you hear about in times. Let me let Tim LaHaye speak directly. This is from page 13. The literal fulfillment of prophecy teaches us that prophecy should be interpreted literally. Meaning, the fact that prophecies always have literal fulfillments when we see them in history, is, that's what he states, that should show us that when God gives a prophecy, he means it literally. Next week, we'll look at exceptions to that rule. Many teachers, this is his words, many teachers today are confusing Christians by teaching that Scripture was never intended to be interpreted literally. Instead, they call for a spiritualizing or allegorizing of the Bible's prophecies. This only leads to confusion. Did God mean what he said and say what he meant? The study of fulfilled prophecy says a resounding yes. So one of the big appeals of dispensationalism is it says... There's no, you don't have to interpret, just read the passage literally. God said what he meant, he meant what he said. That has appeal to people who want to understand God's word and have a certainty and an understanding that they can put their faith on. There's an appeal to that. It's very simple. It doesn't talk about confusing, confusing to use his word, things like genre, you know, type of writing, multiple fulfillments, all of that kind of stuff. Don't even get into all that. Literal, literal, literal. He talks about on page 13 also how dispensationalism, the, it arose, he's, and he says, this is as close as, as LaHaye comes in, in his book to talking about this. The 19th century, in the 19th century came a, what he calls, rediscovery of the study of prophecy or the study of last things. Dispensationalists don't think or don't believe, and they'll tell you, no, this isn't something new. John Darby didn't invent any of it. He rediscovered it. It was lost. The early church, the writers of the New Testament believed it, and then it got lost. And for the majority of the church's history, Christians were oblivious to true end times teachings. But in the 1900s, it got rediscovered. That's because nobody wants to say, well, the system that we believe is brand new. Because in Bible and theology, new does not equal good. Uh, old equals good. What Jesus taught equals good. So you have to say it's as old as Jesus and the New Testament authors. So the way it, it, dispensationalists will say it's not, it's not new, it's not made up, it was rediscovered. I have an email conversation that I'll, I'll give you maybe next week that I had with a, a dispensationalist, good, fr uh, wonderful person who was very much, you know, this is a rediscovery, not anything new. 
the, the view of the mountaintop, the way the prophecies in the Old Testament are to be viewed, is that, and this one I'll show you so you can get a feel for it, Old Testament prophets saw things like looking at a mountaintop in the distance. In other words, what the Old Testament prophet saw, here's the prophet pointing, the Old Testament prophet saw all of this stuff, but he saw it from a front view, so it all looked to be going to happen at the same time. But from God's perspective, you see that just like there's a range of mountains and they all look right next to each other, but they could be hundreds, or not hundreds, but dozens of miles apart. He says that the things that the prophets saw were apart in history, were, were spread apart. So a prophet could talk about a millennium and a final judgment and, and all of this stuff all in the same prophecy, but in reality those events are hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years apart. The key is right here. The church, the, what we call the church, was in one of the valleys. The Old Testament prophets never saw the church. They never prophesied about the church. Nothing in the Old Testament predicts the church, speaks about the church, or, or, or describes what we know of as the church. The church is in the valley. The prophets did not see it. That's huge for understanding how this view develops and, and people that hold to it. Because it basically says the Old Testament is about Israel. None of it in the church. We'll look at next week is, is that true and can that be borne out in Scripture? So, mountaintops, that's one of the keys to it. Um, another passage that dispensationalists feel uh, or, or speak of as giving a, a sort of a blueprint for all of history is Daniel. Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, according, uh, interpreted dispensationally, lays out God's plan for all the ages. And the way it works is, and we'll look at this when we go through the passages and, and actually walk through it, but dispensationalists insert at the end of Daniel 26, that I, I, I need to be careful, they don't say they insert, they say they see in and read in and interpret. There's a gap between the events of Daniel 26 and the events of Daniel 9.27. And that gap is what is called the gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And the 70th week is when all the stuff happens that was promised. The 69th week is when the Messiah appears. And there's a 2,000-year and counting gap between those two. So that's how, pick up a Ryrie Study Bible or a Schofield Study, whatever, you'll see that. There's a long period of time between those two, which critics say, how does that square with a literal reading? but we'll look at that next week. They, the second passage that's the most important, is, or the second most important, the Olivet Discourse. I've mentioned this before. These are passages mainly in Matthew chapter 24 and the parallels in Luke and Mark. This is when Jesus' disciples are asking him about when's the temple going to be destroyed and what are the signs of the end of the age and your coming. And Jesus goes on to give the famous Olivet Discourse because he gives it on the Mount of Olives. That's where it gets the name. The Olivet Discourse, uh, LaHaye says, the Olivet Discourse delivered shortly before Jesus' crucifixion is the most important single passage of prophecy in all the Bible. It provides the master outline of the end times. Studied in relation to Daniel 2, 7, 8, 9, and Revelation 2 through 20, or the book of Revelation, 
It gives more information about major events that yet await mankind, there's the futurist, than will be found in the writings of any religion in the world. We like to think of this outline as a clothesline from which all other prophecies about end times can either be hung at the appropriate time or can run parallel to it. So again, Jesus' words in Matthew 24, that spells it out. Unique thing about dispensationalism in interpreting Revelation, page 37, Revelation is all about things to come or a time yet future. Everything in Revelation is about what we're still waiting to happen, not about events that happened already. Page 43, you cannot understand this book unless you take it literally, comma, the way it was intended. Again, that insistence that scripture, especially prophecy, be interpreted literally. That is, unless the facts of the immediate context indicate otherwise. The literal method of interpretation should be applied to this book just as it is for the other books of scripture. Otherwise, it cannot be understood. And if you don't understand it, you cannot receive a blessing by reading it. Again, this appeal to understanding and, and having a surety and a knowledge. Here's a, an interesting part, though. Revelation chapter 1 through 3, and as we'll look at, can, starts with, with, with Jesus giving seven letters to seven churches. And if you were here for the number series that Talbot and I taught, we'll go through this. Revelation opens up with these seven letters. Well, the literalist way to read that is not to read those as letters written to the churches like they literally say, but rather you read them as, make sure I get the right page, you read them as seven periods in the history of the church. So in other words, you have the church of Ephesus and the church of Smyrna and Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, etc. Those aren't literal churches that John was literally writing to. Those are prophetic ages that the church will experience. The letter to Ephesus describes the apostolic church, which according to LaHaye was A.D. 30 to A.D. 100, the golden age, if you will, when things were apostolic. Then Smyrna, not written to the church at Smyrna, but rather describes the persecuted church, A.D. 100 to about 313 or so. Then the state church, this is the rise of Constantine, A.D. 313 to 590. That is what the letter to the church at Pergamum was talking about. Church at Thyatira was the papal church, the Catholic church. That lasted until the Reformation in 1517. Then you have the Reformed Church, which is the Church of Sardis. Then Philadelphia is the Missionary Church, which began in the 1700s. And ta-da, we find ourselves in the Laodicean Church, the Apostate Church, the church that's going down. So that is the way the, quote, literalist approaches the literal parts of the book of Revelation, which is interesting. Page 46 of LaHaye's book, Israel began with Father Abraham and will continue as a distinct entity throughout the rest of history. While the church partakes of the spiritual promises of the Abrahamic covenant as fulfilled through Christ, Israel and not the church will fulfill her national destiny as a separate entity after the rapture and tribulation and during the millennium. The New Testament teaches that the church was an unrevealed mystery in the Old Testament. Remember, prophets didn't see it. Therefore, the church has no earthly prophetic destiny beyond the rapture. All right? 
These are key terms for Israel and the church being distinct. Two-phase return of Christ, page 52. When the 300-plus Bible references to the second coming are carefully examined, it becomes clear that there are two phases of Christ's return. These passages have far too many conflicting activities connected with His return to be merged into a single coming. So, for instance, on the back or on the next page, on the back, no, the next page, yeah. At the bottom of that, there's two columns. This is from page 112 of the book. The differences between the rapture and the second coming. He gives you the passages that refer to the rapture. John 14, 1 through 3, Romans 8, 19, 1 Corinthians, etc. And then he gives you the passages that refer to the second coming. Non-dispensationalists and Christians throughout history have said these all refer to one event or one series of events. Dispensationalism offered the unique approach of, no, no, when you carefully analyze them, you see that there are too many conflicting details to describe one event or one series of events. They have to be describing two separate things. And so on the back of that page or the next page, you have those differences laid out. Dispensationalism teaches that the rapture is what Scripture refers to as the blessed hope. In other words, that's what we're hoping for. And it gives you the characteristics of the rapture. Christ comes in the air for his own. It's a rapture of all Christians. Christians taken to the Father's house. There's no judgment on the earth. Church taken to heaven, etc., etc. Then the other passages talk about the second coming, the, the real second coming. That's the glorious appearing. And if you read the Left Behind novels, these are names of some of the books. The glorious appearing is Jesus' return and setting up of the millennial kingdom. And so you have to be careful, according to dispensationalism, when you're reading passages in the Bible, you may read one passage and it may seem to be talking about the return of Jesus, but it may actually be talking about the rapture. And the other passages, different passages, talk about the return. So you have to ferret that out. Voila, there's a whole book on how to do that. And other books by other disciplines. This is just the most user-friendly, um, the reason that I'm using it as an example. And then the last one we've gone over, he gives the essence of dispensationalism. Three points. A consistent literal interpretation. You can put a question mark because next week, critics of dispensationalism charge that they're anything but consistent. But they maintain a consistent literal interpretation, a distinction between Israel and the church, and then the third one, the glory of God in a multifaceted way, i.e. seven dispensations, is the goal of history. And he gives you the dispensations there that we went over. So an example of applying dispensationalist hermeneutics to something in Scripture is the chart that I gave you. This is an example of how using dispensationalist understanding of Scripture, you can get an understanding of Satan, for instance. This is one of the charts in the book. And what you find is dispensationalism ends up in a lot of charting because you have to keep the events from being in any way contradictory or describing it from a different angle. If there are two descriptions of something and they don't merge and harmonize perfectly, they must be describing two separate things. So because of that, Here's an example of how LaHaye has charted Satan's activity all throughout Scripture by literally 
reading the passages that he says describe Satan and then talking about it. So you read Ezekiel 28, 14 literally, and it talks about Satan as a guardian cherub in, in Eden. Then Satan's fall comes next, and so you've got Eden where he's here. Then he's up in the heavenly kingdom where he reigns, the ruler of the prince of the air, as Jesus referred to him. Then in Job, he makes a brief trip up to the third heaven, which is God's throne room, and he appears before God. Then back down for the rest of Job, and then the exodus, the cross. Then there's going to be a war in heaven in Revelation. That's a future event. So he goes back up to heaven, but he's cast down by Michael and the rest of the angels, and then ultimately into the grave, the lake of fire at the bottom with the beast and the false prophet. In other words, th this is how you can interpret and understand Satan's activity in history is you read all the passages and you, you lay them all out and make, make a chart. You, you chart it out. That's, that's the way to understand it. Non-dispensationalists don't frequently use a lot of charts in that way um, as far as visual depictions of non-dispensationalists approach scripture by saying events can be described using different language that if you take it literally is contradictory, but if you understand the intent of it, it's not contradictory. It's just describing it a different way. We'll talk about some of that next week.